recruited others to join him. They roamed the hood and challenged authority. Community leaders feared them. Religious leaders abhorred them. We have to get them off the streets, they said. But they weren't part of a gang spreading hate and terror. They were spreading love. Well, welcome to Crossroads Church. It's good to see you here on this Palm Sunday. I want to welcome all of you joining us uh, online as well as here at Thornton. If you are brand new to us, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Matt Manning, and I get to be uh, the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today, uh, we are in the final week of a series that we are calling He Gets Us, which uh, are based on the ads that maybe you've seen on TV, like during the Super Bowl or primetime drama. They've even been like scrolling on the uh, on the scrolls next to the courts on March Madness. In fact, when it comes to March Madness, how many of you had um, SDSU versus UConn in the finals? Anybody in there? No? Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, one back there. Okay, yeah, we believe you. And so, um, yeah, I didn't have it either, which, uh, you know, makes things worse uh, because really when it comes to March Madness, uh, my bud Sam and I, who goes here, Sam Messerly, um, this is the second year in a row that he's beat me in our brackets, which means I have to listen to him crow all year. And so, um, um, that's been a miserable March, and so I know that you're not worried about basketball. Kentucky lost. We're all disappointed about that, and so um, so back to the series, right? So in the series, we're looking at like a handful of experiences that we've had that Jesus also experienced in his life. In fact, when we open up the Gospels, when we open up the, the story of Jesus' life, we see that he experienced much of the same things that we experience in our lives. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at really kind of the outrage that we feel in our lives. We've looked at the anxiety that at times overwhelms us. We walked down last week the heartbreak that, that pains all of our souls. And today we're going to look at an experience that we've all had that is the experience of being misjudged or misunderstood. Earlier this week, I was uh, talking with Doug Schmidt, someone who's on staff here, and I said, man, I'm just really trying to think of a time in my life where I was misjudged or misunderstood, and he responded to me by saying, well, you could share that time where you tried to make us all Catholic by serving communion every week. And then he chuckled. Now, if you're new with us, um, about five years ago or so, uh, I made the decision, we were historically a church that did communion like on the first Sunday of every month, and I made the decision that we would do it every Sunday um, of every week. And when I made that decision, like, man, people were riled up. I mean, angrily, people came to me, more than one person, even in public settings. And they said, you know what? Like, you're trying to make us go Catholic. Like, you've gone Catholic, which is a pretty big deal in a Baptist church, right? And so, um, just so, like, we're all on the same page. Like, you can search the scriptures wherever you want, but you're not going to find how often we should take communion. And so, like, I'm a big communion guy. I believe that communion is, like, our greatest testimony, our greatest witness. Um, as, as a family, that when we celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper, like, man, that is like one of the greatest things about us. And so we do communion like once a week here, sometimes twice, Ooh, right? I mean, um, and it's not because I'm trying to make us go Catholic. And so whether you're like a once a person communion person or like a once a year, like you can take communion whenever you want, but you're going to have the opportunity to do it like in 25 minutes, all right? And so like we've all been misunderstood. We've all been misjudged. And we all have our stories, and Jesus had his stories too. Jesus had his stories too. In fact, any time that Jesus uh, walked into a city, a brand new city with his disciples, like, like the eyes of skepticism were upon him. 
That when it came to the governing authorities and the religious leaders, they tagged Jesus. They labeled Jesus and his disciples as, as troublemakers, as lawbreakers, as rebels. That the rumors and accusations swirled in Jesus' life. That there was nothing that Jesus said that was not challenged. There was nothing that Jesus did that was not questioned. That Jesus knew what it was like to be misunderstood. We all have those stories. And so today, we're going to take a look at one of those instances in Jesus' life. It's one of the most intense stories that we find in all of the New Testaments. And it's the story of Jesus that he presents, where he presents this, this rather radical idea that the people of his time either were not willing to embrace or they could not see. They could not see it. And so as we walk through the story, we're going to see how the people grumbled. We're going to see Jesus be misjudged. We're going to see him be misunderstood. And all the while, as he walks down this road in this story, we'll see that as he, as he goes about this, that he never gives up. Because the message that he came to proclaim, the, the thing that he came to do, was too important for him. So we're going to find this story in John chapter 6, and so if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there, and as you do, let me catch you up on where we're at in the story. In John chapter 6, we find Jesus standing on the coastline of the Sea of Galilee, and he's on the Sea of Galilee, and he's on this like hillside, at the bottom of this hillside, and while he's there, all of these people start to show up. In fact, the Bible tells us that there was 5,000 men who showed up on this hillside, plus women and children, to hear Jesus preach. So you have this like enormous, like this enormous crowd, like this small stadium of people who have gathered on the hillside to hear Jesus preach. But when it comes to Jesus preaching, that was really just like the sideshow. The real reason that they were there is because the word on the street was, is that when Jesus shows up to preach, amazing things also happen. Like the miraculous happens. And so too will it in this story. And so Jesus, standing at the bottom of this hill, begins to preach. All these people are gathering together. Jesus preaches through the entire morning, and then lunchtime happens. And the people, like you and me, they all start to get hungry. And the disciples, they start, like, freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? we got to send these people away. And so Jesus takes this little boy's Captain America lunchbox that his mom had prepared earlier for him. He starts taking out the food, passing it to the disciples. He tells the disciples to go hand out the food to the people. And miraculously, miraculously, the food is multiplied where Jesus feeds thousands upon thousands of people out of this little boy's lunchbox. Now, this is an amazing story. And for most of us, we go, yeah, we heard that before. Like, you didn't even have to grow up in church to hear the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And honestly speaking, honestly speaking, this story is so well known, so well known, honestly. It's lost a little bit of its sparkle, hasn't it? It's lost a little bit of, of the way that we feel about it in terms, of, in terms of miracles. But think about the first century. I remember in the first century, like, all of life revolved around food. How do we gather food? How do we prepare food? That all of life was about food. Remember, there was no refrigeration. There were no freezers, like, full with extra. There were no Sam's Clubs and Costco's that you could just run in and buy all the food that you wanted. That every day, every day, life revolved around food. That so much of life was about food. People were always looking for food. And so this is a really amazing miracle. And so what happens next is the people are like, man, we should make this guy king. 
Because if you were going to vote for a king, and one king was like, hey, I'm going to lower taxes and build roads, and the other one's like, I'm going to heal you and feed you all the days of your life, you're like, man, I'm hanging with that guy, right? Give me free food guy. And so the people start to get restless. They start to get a little rowdy. They're like, we're going to make Jesus king. And Jesus is like, man, I don't want anything to do with that. And so he tells his disciples to head across the Sea of Galilee to a town called Capernaum. Jesus slips out the back door, and eventually the crowds begin to dissipate. Well, later that night, there's this another miracle that happens. Jesus shows up with his disciples, meets them in the middle of the night. You can read about it later in this very miraculous way. They end up in Capernaum together. The next morning, everybody wakes up who was on the hillside, and they're like, hey, where did Jesus go? Word on the street was that Jesus ended up in Capernaum, so everybody jumped in their boats, headed across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum in order to find Jesus. They're like, hey, we're sticking with free food guy. I mean, food works today. You can only imagine how food works back there. This is how we pick up the story, chapter 6, starting in verse 24. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? (laughs) Like, this is their question. Like, hey, teach, like, what time did you get into town? Now, listen, Jesus is no fool here, all right? Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows why they're there. Jesus knows their motive, that they're there to get free stuff. They're they're looking for more miracles. They're looking for more signs. Specifically, they want Jesus to serve dessert. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 26, and he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because you saw the miraculous, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That Jesus looks out at the crowd and he says, look, I I know why you're here. I know why you showed up today. You're here to get free stuff. You're here to freeload off me. You're looking for your next meal. You're hoping that I'm going to serve lunch. Like, that's why you're here. And the crowds, they kind of get the hint that Jesus isn't interested in serving desserts. And so what they do next is they start to, to taunt and tempt Jesus to do a miracle. They're saying, oh, Jesus, like, like if you're so great, if you, if, you're, if you are who we think you are, then, then you just show us a sign so that we'll believe. Hey, remember what you did yesterday when you, feed, when you fed all of us? Do that one again. And then once that starts not to work, they take it up and they go, hey, Jesus, you remember Moses, one of the other great prophets in the Old Testament? And they're like, when our people walked with Moses, man, it wasn't just that he fed, God fed us for one day. For 40 years, bread fell out of heaven. Can you do that one? I mean, they're just taunting and, and tempting Jesus to do a miracle. They're like falling over themselves to Jesus to do another sign. All the while, they're missing the points. See, the food was just the object lesson. Like Jesus gave them this, this miraculous sign, but they, but they missed it. To them, it was just an easy meal. For them, it was just lunch. They failed to see what it signified. Jesus says, you know, you spend a lot of time in your life worrying about the food that spoils on this earth. I want you to take that same devotion. I want you to take that same fervor. And I want to put your your mind and your life intent on the things that are eternal, the things that will never spoil. If we put this in modern day language, if Jesus was here today, he'd probably say something to us like this, that you are so concerned as Americans about the American dream, 
That your entire life is, is consumed with how to get more possessions, of how to, how to live your best life now. How do I take care of my life here? Jesus says you're way more concerned about those things and way less concerned about the things of eternal life, about your relationship with God, about what it means to, to grow in intimacy with God. And so with the people, he makes this crazy analogy, but not even the craziest one of the story. He looks out at the people in John chapter 6, verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, Jesus goes, you want eternal life? Like, I'm here. I am the bread of life, that I am the bread that comes from heaven. And the people go, no, you're not. No, you're not. We know you're dad. I mean, look what they say next, verse 41. And so the Jews, they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? I mean, don't we know his father and his mother? How now does he say that I have come down from heaven? I mean, the Jewish people, they, they look at Jesus. At this point, they're grumbling about him. And they say, you're not the bread of life. You're Joe's boy. You're from Mary. You're not from heaven. We all know this. And Jesus, he's like losing his mind here because he's trying to teach them. He's trying to make this transition from food that goes away, from desires that are never fully satisfied to something better, to something bigger, to something that gives hope, to something that gives life. See, the point that, that Jesus is trying to make in all of this is this, is that when it comes to the things on this earth, they don't last. The things on this earth do not last. That the only thing that you will ever be satisfied in is Jesus. That this is the point that he's trying to drive home with the Jewish people on this day. He's aiming them at an eternal perspective. And instead of listening, the people are grumbling. Instead of hearing what he has to say, the people are misjudging. They're misunderstanding everything that's going on. And so disputes are breaking out and people are fired up. They're angry. And so Jesus makes this statement. He responds by making this statement, this analogy that is so, that it, oh my goodness, like it is, it is so absurd. Like Jesus literally takes them into the Twilight Saga. Like he goes all, like, like all Edward Cullen on them. I and mean, look what he says, verse 53. And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. <laughs> what? Yeah. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 54, and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Okay, weirdo. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, you can only imagine the scene that's taking place here, right? Like, all of these people have traveled across the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus preach, but more specifically, to get lunch, another lunch from him. They're expecting this miracle. They're expecting him to, to deliver on, on the idea of food. You can imagine what's running through their head here. Like, this was incredibly offensive language. I mean, it sounds like Jesus is inviting people into cannibalism. 
which isn't only gross, but totally against the Old Testament law. I mean, the Old Testament law, you could not eat a medium rare steak, let alone drink somebody's blood. Like you just, it was against the rules, like you can do it. And so all these people are gathered, this huge crowd is gathered. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking this, this incredibly graphic language and he's making a parallel for them. That the eating of my flesh and the drinking of my blood is a figurative way of saying, believe in me, trust in me, receive me, get your eternal nourishment from me. That's the only thing that will satisfy your soul. Now, the more that Jesus teaches this, the more uncomfortable it becomes. The longer he goes, the more intense it all gets. And finally, it gets to the point where somebody raises their hand and interrupts Jesus' teaching and says probably, you know, like the biggest understatement in all of the New Testament, verse 60. And when many of the disciples heard this, they said to him, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Like, Jesus, who can get on board with this? Like, how in the world do you expect us to even, to even walk down this road? And as this question's being asked, something begins to happen here. The further into the teaching that Jesus gets, this large crowd begins to shrink. Now, if I was here at this point, I'd be like, okay, time out, time out. Jesus, we got to rethink the way that we're doing this. Like, we got to reevaluate our methods here. People are leaving. Like, you're building a movement. A movement needs people. The people are leaving. They're, they're moving. You need to do something. Like, do a miracle. Make a sign. Feed the people dessert. Like, do whatever you have to do. People are leaving. You have thousands of people here, and they're all getting back in their boats. You're driving them away. And the disciples, they're all here. And they're sitting and, and they're watching all of these people walk away. Yesterday, they were, they were rock stars with Jesus. And today, they're just hanging out with the crazy guy. And look what happens, verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that it's disciples. Now, these disciples are not like the 12 original disciples that we, that we know so well. This is like the 100 or so people who have been following Jesus for a little while now. They were all grumbling, misunderstanding about what he was saying, and Jesus said to them, do you take offense at all with this? In other words, does this cause you to doubt? He looks out at these hundred or so disciples and he says to them, are you now questioning how close you are associated with me? Because now when people hear my name, it's not a name that they come running to, it's a name that they go running from. Suddenly, it's about to get really hard to follow Jesus, to hang with Jesus. And look what happens, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with him. That all of a sudden, these hundred or so disciples who had been hanging with Jesus, now they have a choice. And what happens? is they all begin to turn around and leave. That for these disciples, they all begin to wonder if they've made the right choice in following Jesus. If Jesus is really the guy they want to hitch their wagon to, this rebel of society. 
and almost all of them begin to fade into the background and completely disappear. As all of this is happening, verse 67, Jesus looks at the 12. These are the 12 disciples that, are, that we're familiar with. He looks at him and says, do you, do you want to go away as well? Like it's just you and, you and me, right? There's just 13 of them left. I mean, just think about this for a moment. The crowds went from at least 5,000 to, to 100, maybe a couple of hundred, and now it's just the 12 of them that are left. And Jesus looks at him and says, are you going to bail too? I mean, the emotional tension of this moment is enormous. This is the point in John's gospel where, where Jesus, the rock star, begins to fade. It's the end of the crowds for the most part. It's the end of Jesus' popularity. The only ones left are Jesus and his original 12 disciples. And these 12 disciples are about to move into a deeper level of discipleship. They're about to move into a deeper level of relationship, a deeper level of, of followership. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he begins to target in on them, the ones who have been with him from day one. John, one of the originals of the 12, one of the original disciples, is the one writing this gospel. And he's writing years later, remembering back on this unforgettable moment, because it's in this moment in his gospel that is the defining moment of Jesus' life. It's in this moment that, that things become so clear that Jesus is not looking for fans, he's looking for followers. He's looking for, for followers who, who understand that there, is, that there is no forgiveness without repentance. There is no believing without trusting. Like there's no kingdom without love, there's no salvation without surrender, and there is no life without death. That following Jesus from this point forward is going to be hard. From this point forward, it's going to cost the disciples something. Following Jesus is leading down a path that isn't going to be to what they thought it was going to be, which was filled with fame and fortune and authority and all the things that came with being a rock star, walking with Jesus. But they come down the path and they realize that this is going to be hard. Because Jesus didn't come to be a rock star. That Jesus came to proclaim the good news to the poor. That Jesus came to liberate those who are oppressed. That Jesus came not to, to save the righteous people, but rather to walk with sinners. That Jesus didn't come touting the law, but rather with a new commandment to love all people. That Jesus came ultimately to die in order to rescue all. See, for Jesus' entire life, the, the purpose of why he came, the purpose of why he came to do what he do was completely misunderstood. That he was judged by people. He was labeled a rebel by the religious leaders of the day. If you've ever felt like that, Jesus, he gets you. He's been there. And the 12 disciples in this moment are all who remain, just, just them and him. And Jesus, staring into their souls, looks into their lives and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to be like everybody else and turn your back and just fade into the backgrounds? And Peter answers him in verse 68. Simon Peter said to him these words. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, like Jesus, where, where else would we go? Like, sure, you say some crazy things sometimes. Sure, we don't, we don't understand everything, but we know too much. We've, we've seen too much. It's not what we thought it might be. It's not how we predicted 
It's not what we expected. And in this moment of great clarity, Peter, Peter realizes that if it's not Jesus, then who's it going to be? That all of us follow someone. All of us follow something. Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Like Jesus, is, here's the deal. You're God. We believe this. We believe that you are who you say you are, and man, you do. You say some crazy things, and sometimes we don't understand what you're talking about. And sometimes we don't like what you have to say, and other times we don't like how you say it, and sometimes we don't like what you do or what you're going to do. But here's the deal. We believe that you are the Holy One from God, that you have the words of eternal life. And sure, sure, we could go out and we could follow someone else. And it might be easier. They might seem smarter. They might be able to, to feed us every day of our lives. But Jesus, you have the one things that our soul desires more than anything in this world. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, we believe. We believe. And so here we are, some 2,000 years later, looking at this passage. And if we're honest, being honest with ourselves, it's not much easier today to follow Jesus than it was back then, is it? Like all of us have to wrestle with the very question, if, if not Jesus, then who? Because we all have those moments in our life, right? Where we realize that following Jesus is a little bit difficult. When we realize that following Jesus costs us something. I mean, maybe for you it happened when you were in college. Maybe it was that first year of college and you grew up in the church, you went to youth group, you did all the right things, and then you landed in college and you went to the dorm and you realized that nobody cared. And there was this underlying current with everybody that you ran into, like, are you going to believe in that stuff forever? And in those moments, if you were honest, it started to cause some doubt in your life. And there's Jesus. Are you going to leave too? Maybe for you, it was in your career that you've decided that you're going to be a Christian businessman, that you're going to be a woman with strong Christian ethic in the business world. And the values that you live are not the values that everybody else lives. The values that you have are not the values that your company shares with you. And you've started to notice because of the values that you hold on to, that you're being passed over for promotions, that you're being passed over for raises. And it's begun to, to seed a little bit of doubt in your life that following Jesus isn't as easy as you thought it might be. It's not leading to the places that you thought it might lead to. And there's Jesus standing going, are you going to leave too? Or maybe you're in a rough patch in your marriage, and your faith isn't making your marriage easier, it's just making it harder to leave. And in the midst of that turmoil, you're wondering, is all of this even worth it? And Jesus is standing there going, are you, are you going to leave too? Or maybe you're here today. And you're like a majority of the crowd that, that gathered to see Jesus, checking him out, seeing if he's for real. And man, you got questions like the people had questions. You got, you got questions. Let me tell you, all of your questions are valid questions. Every single question that you ask is a valid question. We could spend all kinds of time answering all of your questions. But the truth is, it comes down to one question. It comes down to the question, if not Jesus, then who? Like, all of us subscribe to some worldview. Do you know what yours is? 
Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you got you to be able to, if it's not Jesus, then who? You're going to follow someone, who's it going to be? If it's not Jesus, who are you following in this world? Before you bell out, before you walk away, before you turn and go, no, none of this is worth it, you just have to ask yourself the same question that Peter asked, whom shall I go? If not Jesus, then, then who? See, in the rough moments of our life, in the crisis of faith moments that we have, in the seasons when believing and following Jesus is hard, when you're exploring all of this out, it's not all the other questions that matter, it's the one question. If not Jesus, then who are you going to follow? Whom shall I go? See, Christianity is the good news that God sent his son Jesus into this world to rescue you. Christianity is the good news that there is a God in heaven who knows your name. He knows your thoughts. He has great affection for you. He cares deeply for you. He loves you so much that he sent his son into this earth in order that you might die. That he sent his son where his flesh would be broken and his blood would be poured out so that you might receive forgiveness. That when you and I receive Jesus, certainly we receive the Savior of the world who saves us in this world, but we also receive, we also receive the bread of life that satisfies us forever. That Jesus came to take your place, and in doing so, your sins are completely blotted out. See, this is the great offer of this chapter. That sinners like you and me that we can have life, that we can have a relationship with God, that we can be satisfied in this world because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. This is the truth that is proclaimed in this chapter. It is the truth that is proclaimed through the whole story of the Bible over and over again. If not Jesus, then who? Whom shall I go? In a moment, we're going to take communion together, and, and as we do, I want to just give you a few moments at the front end to internalize John chapter 6 in your own life. To wrestle with the question, if not Jesus, then who? Just be honest. If you're not choosing Jesus, if you're not walking with Jesus, then what worldview are you really chasing? We're going to dim the lights, give you some moments of quiet. I'll pray and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, the question that you ask penetrates our soul. Are you going to leave too? Lord, your entire life you were misjudged. Your entire life you were misunderstood. At every moment it seemed like you were being challenged. And as we look at these words of John chapter 6 today where the grumbling and the judgment is so high, Lord, on this side of the cross, we realize, we realize what you were trying to explain, what you were trying to show. 
that through the breaking of your body and the pouring out of your blood that we can experience life and life everlasting, that we can experience a life that is satisfying in you. And so, Lord, today I pray for each and every one of us. Lord, that we would be honest in our hearts. If not you, then who? Who are we following in our life today? And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you. To be like Peter and to proclaim, where else are we going to go? You're the Holy One. That you're the ones with, you're the one with with the words of eternal life, and we believe. Jesus, I thank you for this teaching. I pray that on this day that we would not misunderstand you and misjudge you, but today we would see you clearly and that our lives would be holy years. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Today, as you're wrestling with that question in your hearts, if you come to a place where you want to have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus, to make Jesus the Lord of your life, then we're just going to have the text number. Again, it's 720-513-1933. You can text the word Jesus to that number, and, and we'll connect with you. The reason that we do communion every week is because of passages like this that remind us that as Jesus is speaking here of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that we gather as a family proclaiming what his death is all about, where his body was broken. And through the representation of bread, we eat and we celebrate the life that's been given to us in Jesus. And as we drink of the cup, we remember that through Jesus' blood being spilt, that we have salvation, we have forgiveness of our sins, and so we drink together as a family. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we, we sing about this God who loves us, who knows our name. At any point over the next 20 minutes, if you need prayer online, just click the button in-house. You can make your way to the back under the prayer banner. We'll have people to pray there with you. Let's sing to our Lord and Savior.